Today's reading is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When Allie and I first moved here to KC, we lived in a sixplex down in Midtown. And um, we were invited by our neighbors one afternoon to come down and hang out on the patio. And like most of our neighbors, uh, these ten or so guys... um, identify themselves as gay men. And so we're having this conversation, shooting the breeze, and sure enough, questions about the church pop up because they knew I was a pastor, and they were always so kind to me and caring uh, towards me and Allie, uh, or Allie and I. And uh, the grammar, never, you can never get past that, right? Um, <clears throat> and, and while we're having these conversations about Christ's community, there's another conversation going on alongside of us. I wasn't invited into that conversation, and I totally get why. Um, Because in that conversation um, were stories of hurt, stories of pain, brokenness, anger at the broader church. And some of you have had those conversations before. Now, every time I have conversation with someone over coffee, if they're a new person trying to find out about Christ's community, the question I never get is, so what's the church's stance on reviling? You know, or... um, where do you guys stand with swindlers, okay? Uh, no, it's, it's, never, it's never that. It's always, okay, Gabe, where does Christ's community stand with homosexuality? And we can't really ever escape this conversation. You turn on the news if for just a moment, and you'll hear about the wider shift in our culture and its viewpoints on marriage or the upcoming United States Supreme Court decision on whether they would decide on the legalization of gay marriage for the country. And this is what's happening around us. This is the culture in which we find ourselves. And a lot of thoughtful people are asking the question, has the church gotten homosexuality wrong? Has the church gotten homosexuality wrong? Well, the answer, yes and no. And to tackle the nuance of that answer, we're going to take a little bit longer time in our teaching than usual. So buckle up. Okay, here we go. Um, So let's start here. First, yes. Far too often the church has failed to show compassion and has rather shown and marginalized and even abused those who experience same-sex attraction. We as Christians, we're too eager to pick up self-righteous stones and throw them at those fellow image bearers of God who experience same-sex attraction and then forget all the sexual mess-ups and brokens we got going on in our own life. So there's that first. And the more I get to know my friends who experience same-sex attraction, the more I realize I have to learn. And, and I, I want us to begin our time this morning. It's what I pray for myself. It's what I pray for us as a church, that we come with a posture of listening and repentance. 
But alongside of all of that, I, wa- I want us to know that the church hasn't gotten it all wrong. And I want to start from the get-go by saying, because there's no way around it, that homosexual practice is not compatible with the biblical text and the church's 2,000 years of interpretation as culture has come and gone throughout the past history of the world, okay? So I want to say that from the get-go. True, it's very disheartening that there are churches who have failed to hear the calling of Scripture and to be a loving and caring community. But there are also many churches who've been examples of those who hold to the high value of Scripture, who hold to the passages that prohibit homosexual practice, and who continue to hold to the value of gender, of sexuality, and marriage that God's design portrays, all the while sacrificially loving their neighbors and fellow members who experience same-sex attraction. And with all that in mind, I want that to be the church that we are. I want us to live into that story because we hold fast to God's word. We value what God's word has to say. We believe it's authoritative and pointing us to the flourishing life in every aspect. And we've got a better story to tell in this area. Oh, we've got such a better story to tell. And I pray that we tell a better story in this particular area. I trust the Bible as God-inspired throughout various authors, throughout history, as authoritative in teaching and guiding us into the flourishing life. And you may be here this morning and disagree with that. And I want you to know I respect you. And if you disagree with the authority of Scripture, I can even understand how you can come to your conclusions. I get it. If God hasn't spoken, if He hasn't hasn't revealed His will, if He doesn't have a design and intention for creation, then I get it. But what I don't respect and I can't wrap my mind around are pastors and scholars who claim to hold to the authority of Scripture and then say that homosexual practice, even within loving monogamous relationships, is compatible with the Bible. I can't get there. I can't get there. And if you're new here, um, and even if you're not, you're probably eyeing the door. (laughs) What did I just get myself into? I didn't know that was today. Um, But I want you to know... (laughs) I want you to know, look, we're not on some homosexuality crusade, okay? This isn't our soapbox. Here at Christ Community, we've only got one soapbox, and that's Jesus, right from the get-go, okay? And if you are new, I want you to know we've been walking through this letter called 1 Corinthians. And when we walk through whole books of the Bible, we let the author lead us. God's already been wrestling us to the ground and helping us see our pride. He's already been helping us see our greed. He's already been showing how Faulty, we have, faulty the processes we have in terms of bringing reconciliation, how quickly we want to run to lawsuits, how quickly oftentimes we don't deal with brokenness, even incest within the church. So why not this too, right? I mean, why not? Let's just jump all in. And, and I want you to hear also, I mean, there's all these kinds of things we're saying, right? I want you to know this isn't a tirade to the LGBT community out there. That's not what this is. This is a message to all of us in here. Because we're all sexually broken people when it comes to this. Some of you, this is a, isn't just an, a topic to topic talk about, but instead this is your life. You've been experiencing same-sex attraction and wondering where the church stands. For some of you, and maybe for most of us in here, we have family, we have friends, we have coworkers, neighbors, classmates who experience same-sex attraction 
And when we bring up this topic, it causes a whole swirl of emotions. Some of you may even be here this morning and be angry. Angry either because you want the church to come with some unqualified acceptance of homosexual practice or some unqualified condemnation of those people who experience same-sex attraction. And I want you to know if you find yourself in either one of those camps, you're going to be sorely disappointed this morning because the gospel calls us to a third way. A third way where we don't have unqualified acceptance of homosexual practice or unqualified condemnation of same-sex attracted individuals. Instead, we have a whole new story in Christ that transcends even orientation. And because we have all these emotions, we have all these questions, we have all this baggage with this topic because we've seen all these things on the news or had various conversations that we got heated, we need God's help big time. So let's ask him for it, okay? So let's pray. God, we need you always, but especially here. Um, This topic is so polarizing. Um, And as a church that seeks to be unified and centered in your word, We pray that you would grant us compassion and wisdom. Forgive us our mistakes. I mean, we're all sexually broken here, and forgive us for the ways that we go about with judgmental attitudes to try to justify ourselves as better than other people. Rather, may the gospel free us for truth-filled forgiveness and gracious holiness. We want to thank you for creating us as sexual beings. This was your idea, and we thank you for that. But may you empower us, may you guide us to live into the design of our bodies that is for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Last week, we saw that when we follow Jesus, it shapes um, what we do with our bodies regardless of our orientation. And then Paul kind of lays the smack down at the end of chapter 6 and says, hey, you don't belong to yourself. These bodies, the one thing we thought we owned that we finally had control over, Paul's like, no, God created you. He purchased you for himself. And today, we're remembering what Paul calls us to in chapter 6, verse 18. If you're a Christian, Paul says we are to flee from sexual immorality. Flee from porneia is the Greek word, which you may remember is the broad, all-encompassing term for any sexual activity outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. And today we're going to focus in on homosexuality. Not because it's any worse than any other sin out there. Not because it's on the top of the hierarchy. Actually, we hardly ever talk about it. And yet we talk about it all the time out in our culture, and it's happening all around us. We can't avoid it. And as Christians, we should be thoughtfully engaging This particular issue, which is more than an issue for many of us. This is a real, live, relational component in our day-to-day lives, okay? So we're going to be tackling that together and thinking about the cultural reality we find ourselves. Today, I want you to know we've got a better story to tell in this area. We've got a better story to tell. And so we're going to focus in on Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 6 and also the wider story of Scripture to better understand three things. The story of who we were, the story of who we are, and the story we need to tell because we've got to tell a better story. All right, so if we look in the passage that was just read for us, Paul begins with the story of who we were. And he lists various sins here. And twice over in our passage, he says, if these activities, if they define your life, then you have no place in God's coming kingdom. 
mainly because you're not going to want to be in God's coming kingdom. Because God will not allow these activities to taint the rest of creation, and he will not allow destruction within his midst. Then in verse 11, Paul says, And such were some of you. This is who you were before you began to follow Jesus. Hellbound sinners before being saved by grace. This is where you were before the gospel came and broke into your life. And if this is where we were, it's in this context of brokenness within idolatry, within adultery, within uh, greed, within theft, within substance abuse and verbal abuse that Paul throws homosexual practice into the mix, okay? And I'm going to get real specific because we need to, because this passage is uh, debated and wrestled through. Paul uses two Greek words. As many of you know, this is an English translation of a Greek text. And Paul uses two Greek words in our ESV. Those two words are summarized with the phrase, nor men who practice homosexuality. In the NIV, they actually translate those two words with two separate phrases, male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. What Paul is doing in the Greek is he's clarifying both parties, the active and the passive partners, in homosexual acts. And that's as far as I'm going. Okay? But that's what he's doing in the Greek. It gets very specific. What Paul isn't doing is talking about same-sex attraction. He's talking about homosexual practice. There's a distinction. Um, if, you've ever, if you've never seen Mark Yarhouse's book, Homosexuality in the Christian, I'd highly recommend you pick that up and read it if you have more to dig into there. He makes the distinction between threefold, okay? There is same-sex attraction, which is the experience of feeling attracted to people of the same sex. There's homosexual orientation, where this same-sex attraction is a common part of your day-to-day experience. It's not just a one-time thing, but it's a common part of your experience. And then there's gay identity, where you've taken this same-sex attraction as the primary marker of who you are, and it now informs even your actions. What Paul doesn't say we're responsible for is proclivities, for predispositions, but actions here. And we're going to come back to this later, okay? Now, as modern people, when we hear what Paul has to say here, it becomes really easy for us to, and, and really common for us to concoct a narrative of who Paul is as some ignorant, uh, homophobic guy that if he just lived in the 21st century, he would have never written this. And that's not because, I think, it's not because Paul is ignorant of us and our progressive ideals in the 21st century, but it's because we're ignorant of who Paul was and what he understood in the first century. Now, What story makes sense of this verse? That's a question we're going to ask. And I want to start by unpacking a little bit about who Paul is in our passage and in the wider narrative of history here in the first century. He grew up in the first century metro of Tarsus, which was known for its educational prowess. He read all the right books. He knew all the right publications. Um, He was multicultural. He was multilingual. um, Knowing and being fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Latin and probably Aramaic. So in other words, let's just be clear, Paul wasn't no chump, all right? He knew what he was talking about. He was well-traveled. Secondly, he grew up in the Jewish tradition, just like Jesus. And so the Old Testament scriptures were his Bible. They were the base for his beliefs and his structure. And it's here we see that God, in the Old Testament, had clearly articulated the defining story of humanity. And it starts all the way back in the beginning. So I want you to look in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. So after those pages nobody else looks at, you know. Um, 
If you go there, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. The beginning of the Bible sets the stage for the beginning of our world. And we see how God has designed us, his intentional or his original intention for us to flourish. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And it's also up on the screen. Then God said, let us make man or humankind in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man, humankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What do you notice? What do you notice? We are designed, we are designed to now reflect God in all of creation as image bearers. And as a triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, diverse and yet one, we find the tension of sameness and differentness in male-female gender distinction right from the very beginning. Then when you leave the poetry of Genesis 1 and you get to the explanatory narrative of Genesis 2, we're changing genre here, we read how God first forms the man, Adam, and then out of Adam... He creates the first woman, Eve, and corresponding, he calls her a corresponding ezer in Hebrew, a helper. And I know we've got baggage for that word in English, but just hang with me. Then as you reach the climax of chapter 2, the institution of marriage is established in verse 24, which reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Just as the woman was made out of man, so they are now reunited in a oneness in marital intimacy. There's male-female complementarity in the union of body, soul, and spirit. Physiological fit, one flesh that confirms the union. But then something happens, okay? This is Genesis 1 and 2. This is what we've been designed for. But then something happens, and if we miss it, we totally miss why we have to have this conversation and why we wrestle with this. Genesis 3 happens, and everything goes crazy, okay? It wrecks havoc on every aspect of our lives. Sin and death enter God's good world, and it impacts everything, especially the deepest and most precious parts of who we are, our sexuality. So what happens next? You've got God's intentional, uh, original intention, and then you have the fall in Genesis 3. Well, what happens in the rest of the story? And this already feels a little bit like a class because it's really important that we're tethered to what's happening in the text. But this is going to feel even more so like a class, so hang with me. This is important uh, for us to have a critical understanding of the flow of the story of who we were. Okay, so in Genesis 19, There's this disturbing story of how the men of Sodom surround Lot's house in order to rape Lot's male guests. And this is the final straw for God's judgment on Sodom. Um, And and it's for three things, but predominantly the first two, a lack of hospitality and a violent culture. Those are the primary components on what's going on here. But there's also the engagement in homosexual practice, which is a component to this story that we can't miss. Later in Judges 19, there's a similar account where the men of Benjamin seek to rape another male guest in their town. Once again, the main emphasis is a lack of hospitality and the violence of that culture, but it also corresponds in conjunction with homosexual practice, okay? Moving on to the book of Leviticus, which was Israel's holiness and purity codes for flourishing in the promised land. In Leviticus 18 and 20, 
there we see severe consequences for engaging in homosexual practice. Okay, we, we go through the Old Testament, right? We start highlighting these texts. But what about when Jesus steps on the scene? I get that the Old Testament says that stuff. But what about when Jesus steps on the scene? Does he say anything about homosexual practice? Well, no and yes. <laughs> no and yes. And here's, here's what I mean. Jesus doesn't say anything explicitly in prohibiting homosexual practice. But that makes complete sense. Here's why. Jesus' primary context was connecting with Palestinian Jews who held to the Old Testament scriptures. And it's only, it only takes a cursory reading of the Gospels to notice that Jesus is never shy at confronting a misreading of the Torah. And yet, Jesus never once confronts or challenges the widely held view of the Jewish people that homosexual practice was out of bounds morally. Not once. And time and time again, challenge, Jesus challenges all sorts of things and how they've been misreading the Torah, but never once with homosexual practice. And that's, I think that's significant. Instead, in Matthew 5, what does Jesus do? He raises the bar in sexual immorality in his Sermon on the Mount by highlighting that sexual immorality is not just a physical action, but also an act of the imagination. He includes lust into the puzzle. Um, secondly, in Matthew 19, Jesus also raises the bar on marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. By quoting Genesis 2, he goes back to God's intended design. And it was so intense that it left the rest of the disciples, when Jesus says that, go, maybe it's a better idea not to get married. And Jesus is like, well, maybe. <laughs> because this is a serious component to what God has designed us for. And if we go outside of God's design, it has ramifications that are very heartbreaking. So when you finally arrive to the Apostle Paul, who's at the tail end of his story. He knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards, memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament as a Pharisee, but now has experienced the resurrected Jesus. He calls him his Messiah. He calls Jesus his rabbi, who now informs how he teaches the church. The three times that Paul writes about this in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, our passage, and 1 Timothy 1, they all have continuity with the rest of Scripture, where he mentions homosexual practice as sinfully opposed to God's design and desire. He's perfectly in line with the rest of the narrative of Scripture and Jesus. Okay, so why was it so important to make that point, to go through these monotonous Scriptures, to go through the storyline? That's because there are some people who, even with all the biblical witness— and with the history of 2,000 years of the church confirming the biblical witness, now say that homosexual practice is in fact compatible with the Bible. So we're going to take a moment and talk about what are some common pushbacks to this story. And in a majority of the most thoughtful pushbacks that I've read and thought through and talked through, there's a consistent claim that the biblical authors were either overtly biased or unintentionally ignorant to the whole story of who we are. And there's just been some new facts that come out about who we are and, and how we live, such that what they said back then no longer has the same relevance for the Christian community. 
That's the biggest argument, and you find that consistently through the main, I think the most thoughtful arguments that are out there. So, for example, one pushback comes when, when someone says, Paul and the other biblical writers had no category for loving, committing, committed same-sex relationships. They just didn't know about this. When Paul thought of homosexual practice, because of the ancient world in which he found himself, he only thought of exploitation and promiscuity. It's not his fault. He just didn't know anybody in the types of situations like we have today. Well, the problem, I think, with this pushback is that they don't have the whole story. Scholars like Robert Gagnon and his definitive study on the biblical text, I mean, it's, it's a tome. He dives through the Greek. He dives, dives through the Hebrew. In the Bible and homosexual practice, he gives many examples in the ancient world of these sorts of relationships. Across the Roman Empire in the first century, there were plenty of examples of non-exploitative, monogamous, homosexual relationships. There have even been historians within the LGBTQ community, okay? So this isn't just a Christian coming and then biasly choosing which parts of history to tell. T.K. Hubbard is a, a gentleman who's within the LGBTQ community, and his book, Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, documents the fact of common, monogamous, same-sex relationships that were loving was really common in the first century. Paul would have known about this. It's not foreign to Paul's concept. So that's the historical reality that just doesn't jive with the whole story. Secondly, if we notice what Paul is actually saying here in our text and condemning, we would see it's not the motivation, nor does he give a nuance of what kind of homosexual practice this is. He doesn't say either if you're motivated or you're manipulated to do this or you're manipulating others to do this, or it's this kind of same-sex relationship, but it's a broad general scope of homosexual practice in general in our text. So in terms of textual and historical argumentation, I feel like that pushback just doesn't hold up to the whole story. Now for others, um, the major pushback comes from the claim that homosexuality is genetically determined and the biblical writers had no concept for this, you know? Scientifically, they just didn't know what we now know. It's not their fault. Well, this is often known as the genetic argument. And, and it's more and more dismissed by people within the LGBTQ community as well as people outside. And, and here's why. For one, a thing called, within conversations, called the gay gene has, has not been discovered. Um, but for the sake of argument, let's say it was that there was one that was found. And there are genetic, well, let's just say there is a gay gene that's found. There are genetic predispositions toward all kinds of things that we as a culture still require self-control and do not deem morally good just because it's predisposed. Whether they're addictive predispositions to drugs and alcohol or predispositions towards anger and violence. And that's why many within the LGBTQ community don't go towards this argumentation as well anymore. And if we step into the wider debate of nature versus nurture within psychology, um, same-sex attraction continues to show that its origin is from a combination of factors. It's, it can't be just narrowed down to one particular factor. And if we remember the story we find ourselves in, it makes sense that we would have echoes of God's perfect and good design, even down to our genetics, as well as the corruption of that good design all the way down to our genetics. If sin is as toxic as sin is, such that it corrupts everything, it could corrupt us all the way down to our genetics. But in the biblical story, predispositions by themselves do not validate or give license to behaviors. Okay? 
Now, another more recent pushback, and this is the second to, to, to the last one, so hang in there. Um, but this is important for us as Christians to thoughtfully engage, okay, how are we talking about this? How are we thinking through this? Usually, it builds off the other two within the Christian community, and it goes like this. Well, just like the church decided to drop the prohibition of eating pork and its dietary laws, so we too need to drop the prohibition on homosexual practice, okay? You know, once again, I think this reveals a lack of understanding of the whole biblical story. Um, It comes from a misreading, or I think a lack of finishing reading the book of Acts, It stops at Acts 10, where Peter has this vision where a curtain is dropped, and then God says, look, you have pork and you have all these other things. Now you can, the church can eat whatever they want now that Jesus has come. The door has been opened wide for the diversity of the church now with Gentiles coming in. And with this narrative, some will say, well, in the same way, with all that we know now, the time has come to broaden the sexual buffet, okay? But if you follow the flow of Acts, a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 15, the church decides what's essential going forward. It's irreducible minimums. And one of which was to avoid sexual immorality, porneia, that same word we've been talking about over the past couple weeks, which remembers any sexual practice outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. And it's this ethic the church has held to for the past 2,000 years years. Now, I do want to give one more pushback, and I think this is the hardest one. Um, It's the one that breaks me up the most, and I think it should break us all up. The, The pushback goes like this. How can we ask someone who has experienced same sex attraction, maybe they've experienced it as far back as they can remember, and they may experience it the rest of their life, how can we ask them now to live a life of celibacy? And then to give up sex and then, in one sense, forego any chance of a life of love. Man, isn't that the hardest one? Logically, I can't get there with the others, but emotionally, as I wrestle through this, I start asking the question, God, how, how can you ask such high demands? And this is where the story of who we are comes in, Okay? Now, if you're not a Christian, it's a bit less complicated, right? Um, If your sole goal is the accomplishment and the fulfillment of your desires, then pursue your desires. I don't blame you. Um, And I hope you don't hear any judgmental tone in that, seriously. But if you're a Christian, you don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. And we've got a better story to tell, better than our desires, better than our sex lives, better than anything And the battle is waged as to whether we actually believe that or not. Now, the story of who we are is told here in chapter 6, verse 11. Let's read that again together. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is critical to understanding the gospel. Every place in the New Testament where homosexual practice is mentioned, it's within the context of hope, forgiveness, and a new identity within Jesus. In Jesus, we are a washed people. We no longer 
have to wrestle with the stain of our own shame or the taint of our sexual guilt. And we don't have to play the part of Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth where we're constantly trying to wash our own hands of our guilt. But instead, we've been given a new song to sing, a new script that what can wash away my sin, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes it white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, and we are washed people, no matter our orientation. And in understanding who we are, there is the reality that we don't just get to forego our distorted desires. Not right now, not in this life. We're never promised that those distorted desires will disappear as soon as we start following Jesus. We are promised that life with Jesus is always better although we don't always believe that. And that may not seem fair, but I want you to think about the stories we've heard in the news of those Christians in Syria who've been murdered for their faith in Christ. Think about the millions of Christians who have died because they trusted in Jesus. Is that fair? No. Jesus never said it was going to be fair, but he did say he would be with us in the suffering. And whether you experience same-sex attraction or not, Our primary identity is in Jesus, and Jesus means we always are wrestling with self-denial and suffering. It is in picking up our cross and following Jesus. It is in dying that we come to know life and life eternal. And we're sitting here with the choice of whether to be found in Jesus or to be found in something else or someone else. And a great example of this is a guy by the name of Wesley Hill. If you've never read his book, I'd really encourage you to pick it up, Washed and Waiting. Um, Wes, he grew up in a healthy Christian home in Arkansas. Um, But as far back as he can remember, he noticed something different about himself. And he tells this story here of why he chooses to follow Jesus daily rather than fulfill his homosexual desires. And it's because Wes says Jesus is better. Listen to what he writes, and it's up on the screen. The message of what God has done through Christ reminds me that all Christians, whatever their sexual orientation to one degree or another, experience the same frustration I do as God challenges, threatens, endangers, and transforms all of our natural desires and affections. He goes on to say, the gospel proclaims that we belong to God twice over, first because he created us and second because he's redeemed us through the work of his son. Though it sounds politically incorrect to modern ears, the gospel has always said that God may demand from us what he wants since we do not belong to ourselves. And Wes isn't alone. There's a pastor by the name of Sam Albury who himself experiences same-sex attraction but chooses to submit to God's word as the design for his life. We also have Eve Tushnet um, in her book, Gay and Catholic. She writes that if the church is doing its job, actually living out the gospel, then a life without sex does not have to mean a life without love because the church is to be a family caring for singles, a family where singleness is actually affirmed and is seen as an appropriate vocation in which God may call some. And as a church, we've got a better story to tell, and we need to tell that story. We need to tell the story, but how? And I, and I want to give us four parts to telling a better story to end out our, our time this morning. The first is repentance. Wesley Hill, 
um, is brilliant when he says, in all aspects of sin, the pathway to redeeming is not ignoring. Ignoring is not the pathway to redeeming. Repentance is seeing sin as sin, as ugly and destructive, and seeing it, sin as a pathway towards death, and now turning to the path of life. And Jesus is the one who has founded and forged the path of life. It is in him and him alone that we might have life and life eternal. And all of us in here need to be a people of repentance. Repenting of our sin, of pornography, of greed, of pride, of homosexual practice, or heterosexual malpractice. And for some of us this morning, we need to be repenting of our homophobia. I want you to look at your text for a second. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And there's a word that's missing. It's missing in the English. It's missing in the Greek, and it's not a textual critical issue. Um, and many times we live as though it's anchored right next to men who practice homosexuality. It's the word especially. Especially. That's nowhere in our text. And yet somehow we think that it's on this hierarchy or on the top of the list, but it's fitting right in the flow of the list. In one sense, it's just as broken as every other sin in that list. Just in our culture, it's become so hotly debated that both sides have escalated it to be more than it is. And here's the deal. We need to, as the people of Jesus, learn to, to no longer live out of fear and live out of the new story that is founded in Christ of grace and truth. We still communicate truth, but we do it in grace and not live out of fear, distancing ourselves from folks who experience same-sex attraction or when you're at the water cooler using the word gay as slang for all sorts of things. We need to cut that out as the Christian community. Stop and repent of our homophobia. That's something that's very real for us as a church. It's where we've got it wrong, I think, in many ways. And the first step is repentance. That's the first part of the story we need to tell. The next step is seeking understanding. And I'm I'm guilty here. For many of us, we've never sought to understand how robust of an experience same-sex attraction is for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Once again, Wesley Hill's illuminating here, choosing to follow Jesus in a celibate life but also wrestling through his own same-sex attractiveness, he writes this, there was nothing, it felt, chosen or intentional about my being gay. It seemed more like noticing the blueness of my eyes than deciding I would take up skiing. There was never an option. Do you want to be gay? Yes, I do, please. You know, it was a gradual coming to terms, not a conscious resolution. And I've heard Wes speak in person before and talking and joking about how absurd it would be growing up in a conservative Christian home, choosing this type of attraction, and then choosing celibacy. (laughs) That just, it doesn't jive. It's not that simple as a choice. Sure, we choose our actions, but it's really hard to choose our feelings. Same-sex attraction, it's not just as simple as making a choice, which means that growth, change, and transformation aren't that simple either. Now, as a thoughtful Christian, you're probably going to ask the question, well, can sexual orientation change? And I want you to know, as you scour the pages of Scripture and from the information of the gospel, there's an unequivocal yes. But the nuance comes in when. In when. Transformation 
is always possible in the gospel. And transformation will fully happen. And transformation happens different for different people. Until Christ returns and fully and finally transforms all of us in our disordered desires to be as he's always longed for us to be, as we've been designed to be. You and I, we're going to experience temptation and we're going to battle sin our whole lives long. Here's the thing. Can God, can God remove a struggle in a particular area for a particular person instantly? Yes. Does he? How's that working for you? Does he do that in your life with your struggles? I don't think so. Many times when we come with the prayer, God, take this from me, transformation isn't instant, is it? In our life situation or what we're wrestling through. And the answer that Paul received when he said three times over, remove this thorn in my flesh. Three times, what did God say in response? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And in the meantime, we need to be clear that the goal of Christianity isn't to make every person a heterosexual married person with 2.5 kids, okay? That's not the goal of Christianity. Regardless of your age, your marital status, or your orientation, the goal is to make us like Jesus. He's our goal. And that leads us to our third point or a third part, compassion. And if you're here this morning and you experience same-sex attraction, you may be asking the question, am I welcome here? I mean, I heard what the text said. Is it okay to be here at Christ Community? And I want you to hear a resounding yes, okay? Everyone is welcome at Christ Community. If I'm welcome here and then they let me somehow be the pastor, um, Yeah, that says a lot, doesn't it? Um, we, we've all, we, we all have sin. We all have baggage. We all have brokenness within us. The church is defined by hope and forgiveness. That's what the gospel's all about. But because of the gospel, but because of forgiveness, we're going to call sin, sin. And we're going to take it seriously. Whenever the Bible claims something is sin, we will call it Sin. That's because we believe sin destroys us when it's gone unchecked and we love you too much to let it destroy you. Now, coming to the point here at Christ Community, I want you to also know we will not tolerate any abusive speech or the mistreatment of anyone at any time. And if you are someone who experiences same-sex attraction and you feel like you've been marginalized because of that, talk with me and we'll deal with it. We won't stand for that here at Christ Community. This is a place that seeks to be a, per, a, a, a church centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Regardless of your orientation, we long to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, and we're honored that you're a part of the family. Rosario Butterfield, she's a former lesbian and a former uh, professor at Syracuse University. She met Jesus, and I love how she describes it. She's, Jesus ruined my life. Um, <clears throat> it, she's so bold and honest and raw and she says look jesus wrecked my life i wasn't looking for jesus and look i'm a textual critic but then i came to understand jesus's life his death and his resurrection and he's really the lord of the universe and i got to submit my life to him and so she ended her lesbian relationship 
and now is married to a pastor and is a part of the church and still wrestles with this, but she thinks Jesus is the true Lord and Savior, and so she's just wrestling and trying to be obedient. This is what she says. The gay and lesbian community is a real community from which the church has a lot to learn about standing with the disempowered and being good company for the suffering. She loves the church, but she knows we've got a lot of growing here to do. We've got a lot of learning to even understand and live into what Scripture really calls the church to be. Rather than a Sunday event, it's a community that stands by one another, fights for one another, loves one another unconditionally. I want to be that kind of community, don't you? To live into the story we've been called to. Which leads us to our last part. We've got to live out our new identity with authenticity and help others do the same. You see, our identity is Jesus. He's all we got. He's always all we've had. And he's all we need. We sing that all the time, but do we really believe that? Do we long to live an authentically Christian life and make that the first and foremost identity marker of who we are? Because Jesus didn't come and die to make us happier. Not at first. He didn't die to make us more successful. He didn't die to help us avoid suffering or to give us this great sex life. He died to give us love and life and the very nearness of God. And all those happen to be eventually byproducts to make us whole. Do we, do we believe that? Do we believe that? And Rosaria Butterfield brilliantly challenges the church she challenges me every time I read or if you haven't seen, there's tons of video blogs of her where she's having these conversations, really thoughtful. Um, she says this, don't presume that the worst sin in your gay and lesbian neighbor's life is sexuality. It's not. The worst sin is unbelief. And that's true for all of us. There's common ground there as we all seek to follow Jesus. Only when we first listen to the story of who we were are we ever, ever able to believe the beauty of the story of who we are in Jesus? Sinners saved by grace based solely upon the work of Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And when he rose again, he created a community for himself, no matter our orientation, centered on the person and work of Jesus to proclaim the gospel for the glory of God. That's the church. Has the church gotten homosexuality wrong? Yes and no. We've got a better story to tell. And we've got to tell that better story. We've got to receive it. We've got to learn to rest in it. And we've got to retell it in word and in deed. Right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. In one sense... This is like every other sermon, every other text where your good design and good intention and your loving care challenges our self-absorbed ways and our culturally skewed perspectives. And just like in every other way, we pray, Lord, that we would bend to your word and your ways because we know it's for our good, because you love us better than we can even love ourselves. You love our brothers and sisters who experience same-sex attraction. You died for all of us. 
God, may we be a community defined by compassion, speaking truth and grace, living truth and grace, and wholly leaning into the story of the gospel for our own redemption and for the good of those that we engage. It is for your glory we pray. Thank you. Amen. Well, before Jesus went to the cross, he gave us a meal, a meal to remember that Jesus has once and for all, regardless of our orientation, paid for our sin. And it died on the cross with him if we just receive it. And it's in communion, in the Lord's Supper, where we remember Jesus' body broken for us through common bread. It's in the common juice where we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sin. And if you're new here, let me walk you through quickly how we partake in this together. Um, We ask that all those who follow Jesus Christ to come and partake. Um, But if you are yet a follower of Jesus, we ask you to refrain and use this time for prayer that Jesus would continue to reveal the truth of who he is to you. We're so excited you're here. But if you do come, you'll come down one of the two aisles and circle around to one of the two communion stations. You'll gather in groups of four to six and partake together. But before you come, let us remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.